Welcome everybody back to another episode of Below Freezing with CJ and Micah. I'm CJ. I'm Micah. And uh, this is a weekly show where we unthaw a different movie that comes in at or below 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. Get it? 32% uh, below freezing. Ha 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 ha. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm back. I'm glad that it took you coming on the show to, to, <laughs> to grasp it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Micah, how are you? Hey, um, I watched this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad. Um, I don't, I don't know if you're glad, but I'm glad you did. So we could record the episode. The first thing I want to bring up, um, is that we record, we're recording this episode currently a little, a little bit ahead of when y'all are going to be hearing it. And we're recording this episode on Ash Wednesday, which, oh shit, which I think is fucking hilarious. (laughs) Can I tell you a story about Ash Wednesday? Okay. So I never, I never met a cat. Well, okay, I met one Catholic person. I'd only met one Catholic person before I went to college. So I didn't know really anything about Catholicism other than, you know, what you see in the movies where people like uh, go into the box and, and tell the priest about what they did. <laughs> so I'm I'm down at Pittsburgh State University where uh, Micah and I met listeners. And I'm just walking to class one day and I'm like looking around and everybody's got like a black cross on their head. <laughs> So I'm just like going about my day, just sort of like staring people dead in their face, just <laughs> really confused about what's going on. And uh, I, my friend Jay, he walks by and he's got it. And I said, Jay, what is going on? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, there, everybody on campus pretty much is walking around with a black cross on their head. And I feel I'm not I'm the only one. So I don't know if I'm not getting raptured or I'm going to get purged (laughs) or what is happening. And he was like, it's Ash Wednesday. And I said, what the fuck is Ash Wednesday? (laughs) And he was like, it's a Catholic thing. And and it it really calmed me down for the rest of the day because I went like three periods in between class and in some classes just really like staring at people as if they were like uh, invasion of the body snatchers or something. It was uh, it was super solid, I guess. So my sister, so I am Catholic. My sister is not. And my sister refers to Ash Wednesday as National Spot the Catholic Day. (laughs) Um, And like, so what you need to know about Pittsburgh, Kansas, is that while the rest of the four state area is predominantly just your regular old evangelical Christian, um, very Bible belt, Pittsburgh itself has a very specific immigrant ethnic makeup of... Slavs and Italians, uh, hence the unusually high concentration of Catholics for the area, which explains why, like, practically everybody on campus would have had ashes on Ash Wednesday. Every, uh, almost every person (laughs) I ran into that wasn't black <laughs> it was scary it was honestly scary i'm i grew up as i grew up in the church like as a baptist and if you know any baptist you know that basically the entire like baptist sort of sect of christianity is based on like heavy heavy superstition <laughs> so not 
considerably more than uh, Christianity itself, period. (laughs) But definitely more so. This is a lot of prelude to this episode, which is about a movie that deals very, very heavy with uh, heavily with religion. Uh, But before we get into it, we do want to welcome this week's guest, Alex Gradette. Thank you for stopping by. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, And on Ash Wednesday, no less, a thing I just now put together because I'm Jewish and uh, my experiences sound kind of similar to yours, CJ, where this is um, just sort of a day that every year adds a syllable to every sentence because you start a conversation with someone and immediately go to, uh, hey, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) It's views like that that I feel like make me the right guest for this movie. Yeah, man. Got someone who is still relatively church going in Micah. (laughs) We have me who grew up in the church. My grandfather was a pastor. And now uh, while religion fascinates me, I want no substantial part of it. Um, And you, this is so exciting Uh, (laughs) because this week we are unthawing the Luc Besson film, The Messenger, colon, The Story of Joan of Arc. Now, that's such an interesting s- sentence because it is a movie about Joan of Arc that is directed by Luc Besson. <laughs> and this was Luc Besson's follow-up to, I would say, probably his most popular film, uh, The Fifth Element. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I'd take that action. Yeah. So I, I know he has films that are popular, but I would say The Fifth Element is his most popular. Uh, and it stars the star of The Fifth Element, uh, a, a a very pre-Resident Evil Mila Jovovich, who I love because I love the Resident Evil movies, uh, despite literally everything and all of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love them a lot. And so I I do not have the same sort of, I guess, cringe when they see her that I do. Or Resident Evil and Alice is my point of reference for her, whereas uh, Lilu is probably that for everyone else. But yeah, Micah, I want you to take so much point on this episode because <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I just watched. I mean... I'm gonna try. I'm also deeply confused. Um, yeah. Because I don't know how this, I don't know how Luke Besson feels about Christianity. I don't know how he feels about Joan of Arc. I don't know how he feels about sort of, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I guess you, you could kind of, because the movie is sort of bisected into two stories, right? It's, it's, it's the story of Joan of Arc, a messenger uh, from God sent to save France from invading Englishmen. And then there is Joan of Arc, suspected witch on trial in England, correct? Yeah. And I don't know, one, why those movies had to be the same movie. Mm-hmm. And two, this uh, something that jumps out immediately is how weirdly like anachronistic this movie is like from jump because of the period setting versus the way that the movie is shot the way that the uh the way that the editing uh is going this movie is ostensibly all about france for the first two thirds of it but there's only like three french people on screen (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and those people use their native accents, and there's the odd other French 
accent to delineate from the English. All of the English are very Cockney. And listen, I'm not going to harp too much on the fact that the RP English accent and his derivatives didn't really exist until the 19th century. Listen, I get it. It's a historical film. You use English accents to make American viewers understand that it's historical. Fine. Whatever. But um, everybody does it. I'm not going to get mad at Luc Passando for doing it. But some of them have English accents. Some of the French people have English accents. Some of the French people have American accents. Some of the French people have specifically like a either like upstate New York (laughs) or just a generically mid-Atlantic American accent. And that bothers me to know it. I was... (laughs) so bothered by it. I'm with you guys on this because typically speaking, I'll I'll give a movie like the Red October exception, which is if every character is speaking in a foreign language, then you know, then then, then, then then a neutral accent is fine because there's no point in having Russian characters speaking English in a Russian accent because that's not that's just that's for our benefit as an American audience. That's got nothing to do with how they'd be speaking. So just flatten them out. Let them speak in in something approximating like a a a, a tight bracketed range of accents, at least. Uh, but this was. I mean, and the fact that you've got two warring nationalities here who are speaking in such a broad range of accent, it was basically just like, like, come as you are day in terms of your accent. Uh, Like, and I'll make an excuse for when Dustin Hoffman shows up. Out of fucking nowhere. Yeah, 40 minutes from the end of this movie. And I say that I don't know when he actually shows up, but this whole movie has an acute sense of there are 40 minutes left in this movie. (laughs) I'm fine with Dustin Hoffman having his own accent because First of all, we all know what Dustin Hoffman sounds like. And when he puts on an accent, he would have sounded like Hook. And that would have been uh, unintentionally hilarious. Our last episode was Hook. So. Oh, OK. There you go. Uh, so you for guys two would have been... two on me not realizing Dustin Hoffman was in movies until far too late. <laughs> <laughs> and by then and by then the doors are locked. Um, yeah. but... <laughs> and then it's just too late. But it's like but but he's imaginary. So that's that's fine. Like she's she has in her mind invented the the New York accent. So good for her. But like Malkovich as the French king with his with his Steppenwolf Theater Company accent. Like (laughs) what oh God. Just I'm sorry. I know you guys like to go sort of in order and I don't want to jump around, but No, honestly this movie doesn't make sense so the episode doesn't have to either. (laughs) Okay, so we just to get into the recap, we start with a very hard to read uh, medieval Star Wars plot crawl. And uh, that ends with France is going through the darkest period in its history. So w- we start off with the young John, I guess. If you're going to be if you're going to be stuffy and French about it, her name is pronounced Jeanne d'Arc, which um, is spelled differently because French and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um I'm confused. Yeah. So she she <sighs> goes to confession because she loves confessing. She loves, you know, old JC. And uh, she's telling the priest that she hears voices, the voices that we are to assume and she is to assume is God. Uh, and then we get this very long and very overwrought. The only way I can describe it is sort of bootleg English patienty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like sequence of her just running through various 
areas of like the same meadow or field or whatever. I described it as overwrought and contrived frolicking. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. Uh, for for me, it's like there's there's a convention in uh, in musical theater where like if. A verse, uh, like if a happy song goes on like one verse or one chorus too long, like you get, you know, it's because shit's about to go down. Like the Munchkins sing, sing one extra chorus just to make the Wicked Witch of the West's entrance that much more dramatic. Right. This is the non-musical version of that. Like she says the word, she says the word wonderful 45 times in across three minutes of screen time and the rest of the three minutes of screen time are spent frolicking in fields and that's just that's just there so that when shit very abruptly gets very dark it was but wait a moment ago there there was frolics but now there are not frolics what is this yeah so yeah she she ends up sort of laying down in the meadow next to a sword and she has these she has a very uh a very 90s vision <laughs> uh, because visions in movies specifically movies between, I would say, 1994 and 2002 <laughs> all have the same sort of visual palette of these like very fast cuts and blinding light and uh, wind. <laughs> oh, and, it was a golden age of time-lapse cloud photography. Yes. yes. And she has that. There's a little boy who's sitting on a throne in the forest. I was like, and which is where the questions just started to flow yes. out of me. So I'm just like, yeah. uh, there's a little boy on the throne. I was like, okay, it's a little creepy white boy Jesus and or supposed to be God. And they didn't answer that question. And then there were wolves. And, I, and the wolves were sort of coming into uh, like running at her. But then there were like soldiers running at her. So I was like, are the wolves supposed to be the soldiers like metaphorically or are there wolves and soldiers or like I, w- I was just very confused because they would cut and there would just be like a ton of like soldiers running towards her in the forest and there would be wolves and then they go into the village and I was like is this all a dream sequence but they were like no it's not a dream sequence the wolves and the soldiers are attacking the village I actually didn't hate that um, I didn't hate that it is difficult to discern what is reality and what isn't because it does kind of put you in Jean's headspace of is what I'm seeing real? Are these visions real or are they not? So I didn't hate that confusion. I also don't hate the 90s quick cuts. Um, I kind of liked the whole dream sequence, actually. Yeah, I hope they have some in Captain Marvel. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not like, like, I wasn't mad at the visions. I thought the imagery was fun. Um, I like me some creepy religious imagery. And so like the super deep voice and... I was about to say, I know you do. <laughs> I do. You know, um, I, I'm uh, the 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 disconnect that I'm hearing, and that I between you guys, and that I experienced a little bit myself. I think it it ties back to something. Just my overall problem with this movie, which is that Luc Besson, I think, in trying to be taken seriously, forgot to do the things that engage him with the material. So mm-hmm. something like where you're toggling back and forth between these the these very symbolic visions of are they wolves, are they soldiers? That's something that on the page probably looks great and with the right amount of energy and behind the filmmaking put under it would probably play pretty cleanly. But uh-huh. I feel but like got too caught up trying to be important. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. I, I feel like, look, it's a, it's it's a silly movie and he's in over his head. But I if he had brought 
fun to it. It at least uh, I'm not saying this should be uh, a wackadoo story, except you can tell he wants to make it that. And I wish he hadn't. Yeah, I was like, that's what I was about to say. It is a wackadoo story. I I just I wish he hadn't half assed that. I wish he hadn't like it felt like on alternating days he showed up in a suit and tie. And then on every other day he would be in like board shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, and yeah. and there it just very specific moments where I was like, "Oh yeah, this is a Luc Besson movie," and mm-hmm. those were the moments mo- moments I liked the best. Yeah. I love yeah. me some dark surrealism. It should have leaned into that. Yeah, where's the rest of that movie? Like, where you know, yeah. where's where's the crazy angles with with you know? I mean, he's still he's still got his whole thing with he loves interesting faces. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's he. He really loves he he as French directors go like he's maybe second only to like Jean-Pierre Jeunet for like really liking putting ugly people in his movies <laughs> and then yeah. shooting shooting them unflatteringly but to make a point um you know he loves big noses and bad skin and it's all like it's all like reading a Mobius comic and those elements were there but it was like they all had their shirt tucked in for assembly day and just were told by the teacher don't have fun yeah yeah it's it it's one of those things where there's certain shots and certain sequences like when they first get the letter from jean at Mm -hmm. uh in uh shernan i think that's how you pronounce it and that really reminded me of like run lola run and i i was like okay so we're picking up but then the movie has this it has this tendency to like action 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 not action in terms of like an action scene but like interesting thing is happening interesting thing is happening and then they just sort of stop either to ruminate on it or just like or just the pacing just halts which is really really odd the pacing in this movie is all over the place oh it's a mess the cinematography was in the beginning too in the uh in like that first like 20 or so minutes of it i couldn't get a handle on what exactly i was supposed to be seeing but to touch on the story a little bit more uh one thing that i just like threatened to pull me out of the movie was the young John, her sister is killed and then raped. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, just, I was like, whoa. Especially for me to look it up afterwards and her sister died during childbirth, like years and years, like, mm. like, like years after mm-hmm. she was born. So it was like, poor why? Yeah, I... We're going to put we're going to throw up a a trigger warning on the description of this episode for our discussion of this scene specifically. Um, I'm sure that I've talked to CJ before and and maybe in an episode about my feelings on the use of sexual assault as a plot point in film. And I feel like this is one of the most egregious examples of it I've ever seen. Um, It was one of the most graphic rape scenes I have ever seen. Um, It was necrophilia to boot, and Mm -hmm. its only purpose is to serve as what may be Jean's motivation for why she wants to fight the English. It's not even fully used to that potential because there's also like, well, it may be also just that she's sent from God. We never really know. And it 
it sir it's it's clearly meant to shock and it was really difficult for me to watch yeah. the last time i saw this movie was literally 20 years ago uh and i had put quite a lot of it out of my mind uh understandably so i was really caught off guard because i feel like something that egregious is the sort of thing you remember mm-hmm. or viciously repressed like, and they go back to that scene Twice it happens, and then later on, she has a nightmare of being back in the closet watching it happen. And it's like, no, no, we've not, for, we haven't forgotten uh, yeah. that, that that happened and was a motivating force. This didn't need a callback for something that really just adds nothing beyond. Well, like you say, CJ, just just faking, you know, lying about the history of it, but also just when you needed a scene in your script that just really drives home English bad. There are a bajillion other things you can do, and I know this. The necrophilia rape. Because other less loathsome movies have done other things that aren't this. And it just, it's like, the th- the thing I got the sense from watching it this time, too, is like, this whole movie exists because they wanted to do, uh, they just wanted to do Braveheart, but with a female lead. And I salute the notion, mm-hmm. but like, beat for beat, it was really like, again, another movie I haven't watched in a long time, but to my recollection, a lot of Braveheart in this. And it's like, oh, well, Braveheart starts off by, you know, he, he gets married in secret, but then they catch his wife and they cut her throat. Well, wait a minute, we can push that further and it uh, god like it's using sexual assault specifically as a character development cudgel against female characters in particular that that's the trend and then it just makes it even worse well yeah yeah, because it's because it's actually a combination because typically speaking when sexual assault is used as a motivator in a movie for a female character it happens to her this happens Mm -hmm. to a loved one a female loved one so it's not it's not only it, it's two egregious tropes because it's it's sexual assault as motivator and it's fridging so it's yeah. it, it mm, just th- th- I, I i i was i was eagerly excited about coming on the podcast i'm excited to be here now but i hit that point and i was like you know, CJ and I don't really know each other, and I could just flake, and no one would know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I totally get it. And I was just like, oh. And I, it's one of those things that, like, I didn't know that this was going to be, like, something that would have something like that in it that that would, especially because I was worried. I was like, oh, as soon as that scene came up, I was like, oh, I'm really... I feel really shitty about oh. making Michael watch this for the show <laughs> and making really anyone watch it for the show. Cause I, I like to be fully aware. I like to plan when I'm positioning movies for the show that I know are going to break Micah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, and, call back to our bad boys two episode. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Micah, how you doing by the way? That was, that was rough road. I could tell. It was not fun. <laughs> um, I wish I could say, like it's it's one of the most egregious examples of of that particular plot device in film. But like, unfortunately, it's um, it's not the first time. You know what I mean? Like it's it's yeah. in amongst in amongst a lot of other moments like that to where to where it is like it's a thing that like oh yeah, sexual assault is commonly used as a motivating mm-hmm. factor for characters, and it's it's a plot device. 
And uh, this movie sure does it. <laughs> it does and it. And it's one of those things like we were talking about in the Hook episode where like these characters who are sort of, who are protagonists or at least adjacent to the protagonists who all have like super villain origin stories. <laughs> like that coupled with a lot of the directorial decisions that get made. There's this one sequence in which she breaks into the church and takes Holy Sacrament before she's supposed to. We cut right to this sort of royal castle in France where people are talking about having having heard of this girl who speaks to God and stuff like that. We didn't get to see any of the development of that. It just sort of slams right to uh, the people who are going to propel the story forward. Yeah, the things that this movie decides... To, to 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 yeah the the things that it decides to develop and the things that it decides to jump cut past and the its idea of the passage of time is so incomprehensible like i was never i was like wait did has this been like several months has this been weeks or was this just yesterday because it uses these really fast paced jump cuts that make it mm-hmm. feel like not a lot of time has passed but joan's hair suddenly longer or now she yeah. she was a child and now she's an adult it's and what's crazy is that like again this is this is filmmaking stuff that luke Besson knows how to handle like literally yeah his immediate his immediately prior movie fifth element starts in 1920s egypt and then jumps ahead like 500 years and i'm not saying i need a title card telling me the difference between the two but like tonally stylistically they are they are set apart but also unified uh through through the the general filmmaking instead of just is this minutes after this horrendous scene we've just described is it years later what's what's happening why does everybody have a simple jack haircut now which is a good segue into talking about the one like there's a lot of anachronistic things in this film but the one so many but the one thing that isn't is the costuming it was really good. <laughs> and I No, the costuming is great. Which and it made the dialogue even more stark that it wasn't historically correct. That's the thing. That was one of my notes. I was like, the anachronism is so strong between like the period setting, the actual tropes of the filmmaking that I'm recognizing, and the fact that everybody's speaking like it's fucking 1983. Yeah. Like But not in not in like that good like HBO series kind of of way where it's like, yeah. it's like oh you are you are bringing a historical period to life by showing you know showing uh what feel like contemporary attitudes oh but i guess people have always been that way it really just felt like everyone just showed up on set and they were like okay start talking yeah like who wrote the script <laughs> yeah so we start to notice all of this when we get to uh get to the castle with the soon-to-be king played by uh, france played by john Malkovich and his mother-in-law played by Faye Dunaway in a series of increasingly silly headdresses. <laughs> I loved I loved Faye Dunaway in particular in terms of costuming. The headdresses are insane. They've got her They all had veils. Yeah. 
Um, they've got that super, and it's it's really characteristic of the fifteen hundred, the fifteenth century in particular, where it was really fashionable to have a super high forehead for no reason. And so they've even got it like where, because like women in this period would actually pluck their hairlines back mm. to make their forehead appear higher. And like you, Faye Dunaway's even got the like super creepily smooth, super high forehead with all her ridiculous headdresses. And I loved that. Like that put me in the period. And then John Malkovich mm-hmm. would be there just being John Malkovich. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and it would take well, me right wait. back out again. Hang on. I think we've cracked something here. Because given that this came out around the same time, do we think John Cusack was driving him? <laughs> It would explain it would explain a lot, a whole lot. But yeah, like Faye Dunaway is at times she's in the movie that everyone else ought to be in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which also strangely was uh judging by her look and tone was uh, a a remake of Dune. But um <laughs> but again, like she's you're watching all of these performers, some of whom are really good in a lot of movies that aren't this one where nobody's very good. But you're watching Faye Dunaway, the stone cold pro who is able to ju- she like you can tell she gets it. She totally understands. Yeah. What purpose she serves in the story, what she's supposed to bring to each scene, like like she gets it and she embodies it and everyone else is stumbling through like they just shoved their their uh, their Game Boy in their back pocket before they called action. Yeah, I like to imagine that Faye Dunaway just spent the entire shoot just seething at the fact that she's aware that she's the only good person in this movie. And I mean, I don't know if that's I don't know if that was. I don't know if that was her motivation. I, I, I get the sense she spends a lot of her waking hours just seething. So, <laughs> goodness, I like okay. So we're in another another thing. A positive I want to talk about is um, the lighting in that initial party scene because it looked like it, maybe not a medieval painting, but like a Renaissance mm-hmm. painting. Just visually, yeah. it was it was pretty sumptuous in that respect. Um, and also, Vincent Castle was there and. Vincent Castle is so fine. Like, I made no, and not about just it. because I used to date a French dude <laughs> who looks like Vincent Castle. Oh, that's right, you but, did. Uh, but also be- because of that, he's like, I. There's this part in the movie where they're like trying to like lay siege to France with like six people. And, Are you about to talk about the Macy's? Uh, no, not that part in particular, but there's this part where they're trying to tell Jean to go home. And it's framed in a way that looks like Vincent Castle is about to kiss her. Now, mm. my head is like, no, don't do that because that would be dumb and gross. And then my heart is like, no, I want them to kiss because when people kiss Vincent Castle in movies, it makes me vicariously feel like I'm kissing Vincent Castle. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah aside from him i I didn't really no one else really like popped out in like the immediate supporting cast but the i have one very specific supporting cast member that i am um irrationally fond of that i guarantee Mm -hmm. neither of you are going to probably even remember who i'm talking about but there was the guy with the trebuchet and he called yes. it his baby. Oh, and he, I loved got his, some, he loved his work so much. He, he just, I got very like um, Rocket 
and Groot vibes from that guy and his trebuchet. Okay, so, so let me ask you, where the hell was the rest of that movie? Where The movie where that guy what? makes a lick of sense. Because that, like... That was one of those things where I'm like, oh, this is the stuff like like Luke Besson went through 60 shooting days, hating every second of it just so he could show up on day 61 and to do trebuchet guys stuff like it just yeah. <laughs> it, it was the closest this movie comes to getting to life. And it was so aggravating because I was like, look, yeah. Luke, uh, come sit with me for a second. No, no, no. Leave, 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 leave the 12 year old you're dating alone. Come sit with me for a minute. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. He's, he's, he's an open secret at this point and should probably be next. But, um, but come talk to me for a minute. You don't care about the history. You don't care about the performances. You care a little bit about the textures and you mostly care about just making like, like you are sulking your way through this movie. Turn that frown upside down and give us a movie that has that is practically ahistorical, but is an easy watch, but is like an enjoyable watch. Give us that. And I'll 20 years from now, we'll leave you alone and not out you as a as a one time, theoretically one time child predator on a podcast. Because the best moments (laughs) in this movie are, I think, those scenes where you've got the like little merry band of soldiers, which the king Mm -hmm. talks to as a trio in the beginning. So it sets them up as Mm -hmm. a unit. You've got the um, handsome blonde one that plays the king that you've got mild romantic tension with Jean with. You've got Luc Besson, who looks better slinging a couple of maces over his shoulder than anyone has a right to. And you've got the big... Oh, you mean Vincent yeah. Castle. Oh, Vincent I Castle. Like, okay. Who did I say? Luke was on? Oh, damn, no. Vincent <laughs> Castle. Him and the Maces did something. And then and then you've got the older one with the scar on his cheek that, like, is just kind of... Um, he's got a bad mouth, which Jean uh, chides him for... Which yeah, was, he's our okay, can I, can, yeah. But can I tell you though, because I I had not recalled him being in this movie. That guy, same guy who a decade earlier played Angelo the Barfly in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I only mention it because his relationship to the protagonist of each movie is the exact same arc, complete <laughs> and utter skepticism to being won over by their buoyant individualism. It's he had the same reaction. I'm saying it again. You heard it here first on Below Freezing. This actor has had to deliver the same performance opposite Roger Rabbit and Joan of Arc. <laughs> I liked it though. I thought that I really enjoyed the like He was he was really delightful. Like like I I like I said I'd forgotten all of the plot mechanics and I really like using the three of them as a device to show her winning people over that they go from yeah. completely skeptical of her to utterly invested in her to treating her like a peer which very fast, very fast but uh well they're they're simple folk uh but um <laughs> but uh but it's you know I I thought that was really useful and a and a, a, a as close to a good use of charismatic performers as this movie gets, which is say not very close at all, but like using them to show to not just be charming, but to reflect the, how she's charming them, uh, is very effective. And I really, I really grew quite fond of these guys. And again, was like, fine, then show me that movie. 
Sure, because because they're not working in except this one. For, uh, except for like probably leave out the character, the actual person that Vincent Castle is yeah. playing, because <laughs> he he's he's not good. Yeah, um, no, I, I I I read that too, and I was just like, oh, I was like, okay, well, fuck. <laughs> um, but yeah, like okay, so let's talk about the battle sequences because, uh, and I I hate to harp again on anachronism, but there is a especially when they are storming that uh, initial barricade, there's a very Benny Hill aspect to it (laughs) where, especially when we get to like the sort of cannonball situation Mm -hmm. that was like really slapsticky and completely took me out because it's, it's sort of positioned in a way. And maybe I think there was like a Wilhelm scream and stuff like that, but like it's cut against people getting like their heads chopped off, Mm -hmm. like very graphically. And I was like, what, what, am, what's supposed to be my focus here? I was looking for guidance. I was like, <laughs> Luke, friend, why? Here's okay. Here's what I don't get. And I'm going to leave physics out of it because I don't understand them and I'm not an authority. And I'm sure Mythbusters probably did an episode where they dropped a medicine ball through a hole in a castle and, you know, and it blew apart a dummy. <laughs> like, Forget for a minute that I really don't think a stone could get that kind of momentum behind it. This is not this isn't a long range cannon. It's not a Gatling gun. As you are charging the castle, just don't be in a line with the giant hole that shoots out giant death basketballs. Just don't do that. Like like little to your left guy and you're like this is an easily (laughs) avoidable thing. And all then all the English are doing is just like plowing furrows in the battlefield. But like I just after I think the second of like, I'm going to say conservatively, the 15 times that device gets used. I was like, guy, j- just mm-hmm. step to the left. Just, just step scoot, to the left. Just a little bit. Scooch. Just scooch. It's like that action movie trope where people run um, forward from the falling pillar or whatever instead right. of just stepping a couple of steps to the side. It, it was that, but with cannonballs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like these things the don't most... have a real range to them. Um, did anyone else? And I wonder, I, I, I look inward at this juncture in my life <laughs> and... Um, and I and I wonder if I'm I'm thinking this specifically because um, Micah, you and I and our friend Megan, who was in our first episode, uh, were sort of talking about this maybe a few months ago about um, the the Captain Marvel movie that's about to come out and why people are so off put by the fact that she in the promotional material comes off really like cold and um, sort of like she's just there to do a job when to me, that's always been the, that particular character, but how different the reception is to those traits in a protagonist when the protagonist is female. And I ask, and I bring that up specifically because in that whole battle sequence, those, that sort of, truncate those two truncated battle sequences that are sort of stuck together um i was really really annoyed by joan the entire way through (laughs) and i was like oh like would i be this annoyed 
uh, is it just because uh, the character is a woman? It, would I be this annoyed if these traits were coming from a male character? And I was like trying to check myself in that. But then I was like, or is she just annoying? I was confused by the like seesawing of her characterization um, that she is so manic in certain scenes and then so coolly collected and sure of herself in others um like she's Mm -hmm. set up in the beginning post horror show scene where she's like a little she's a little girl and she's just kind of like staring off into space and just kind of like dead behind the eyes and there's this like coldness to her as she solidifies in herself that she wants revenge against the english and um Mm -hmm. and then and then later and then other moments she's just like weeping at the magnitude of being god's messenger and then at other moments she's like manic and unsure of herself and i just it just felt like her character was so inconsistent that it made her demeanor in those battle scenes stand out more to sort of double down on it i think that it was also annoying because they don't really show her in particular doing anything she's leading them and stuff uh and in sort of getting all these men killed really without a plan or without a plan that she's sort of hmm. telling everybody and then stuff just sort of works out yeah yeah and i i I think a lot of the things we're discussing too. Well, first of all, they speak to uh, not great script and uh, and and less great direction, like we've been saying all along. And I don't, I don't have any particular desire to drag Mila Jovovich, but I think we can agree she's out of her depth in this movie. Um, yeah. And that yeah. the things that the things that she has been good at, being sort of ethereal and otherworldly, and even. Even to give credit where it's due, CJ to your beloved Resident Evils is being just sort of grim and, you know, and and uh, delivering an eyeline through her eyebrows like all of that. That's yeah, she's Steven Stagall, but a lady. Right. And all of that she does. Your mileage may vary, but all of that she does well enough to say that's her wheelhouse. But to be as all over the place as she needs to be for this. Uh, and still tie it together into a unified performance. She doesn't have the chops for that, and I, I don't. I don't even know that you would. You could get Mila Jovovich to to confidently say she has the chops for it. So much as her then husband bullying everyone involved to make sure she had the part. Yeah, it 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 very much feels like a role that like fifty like ten ten. 15 years earlier would have gone to Jodie Foster or mm-hmm. something. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. And she would have, and she, she has those chops to sort of loosely lace it together so that it feels like a cohesive, uh, cohesive character. And just Mila Jovovich doesn't. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, just to, <laughs> to truncate this a little bit, uh, so we don't go over like an hour <laughs> and 30 minutes. <laughs> they win those two battles and the French retreat to the territories that they, or not, excuse me, the English retreat to the territories they have already conquered. And, uh, Jean and her merry band of, you know, uh, tertiary Thor characters go back to (laughs) go back to France and John Malkovich is crowned king. And then they sell her out to the English, which I I guess happened. But but like immediately, immediately, like as a coronation gift. 
he's yeah. like he's like I got you death. It was such a it was such a stark shift in character for him mm-hmm. with no explanation because he was like all in up to that point. Like it was it yeah. was very sudden. Like all of us like she's winning, everybody is thrilled with her. They're, she's getting these battles. She's got Orleans back, which nobody had been able to do for the past like 80 or so years. And Mm-hmm. And everybody's thrilled with her. And John Malkovich was kind of like believing in her from the beginning. Like everybody was like, don't meet with her. And he's like, I think I'm going to meet with her. If it was just the result of Faye Dunaway's character, I would buy it because Faye yeah. Dunaway's, uh, because that character is set up as being uh, very cunning, very calculated, and, uh, you know, risk versus reward in the way that she handles all things. So if that had happened just at the behest of her character, because it happens at the behest of both of them. In the movie. But if it just happened at the behest of her and he didn't know about it, I'd be able to buy it a little bit more, specifically because he seems so tuned into everything that Jean was talking about in the that first half of the Yeah, it's just a weird heel turn coming from him. And granted, Faye Dunaway is right there to help him put it into action. Excuse me. To put it right right there to help him put it into action. But uh yeah, again, it's not it's not her idea. It's just this weird turn from him where he's like "Mm, i'm king now that's i'm good yeah it's just so odd and so then we we uh we dive into uh volume two of the movie which is the trial of jean dark (laughs) and uh as apparently it is pronounced and at this point we're in a completely different movie uh I, i guess this is the point in time we sort of dig into the hoffman of it all I, this is where the movie like lost me. I even like stopped taking notes at this point because I was like, maybe I'm not paying attention enough. No, I think it just doesn't make sense anymore after that point. Um, They don't explain the motivations of anybody that got her to that point. They're not making it super clear who her, um, like who's English and who's not. So, like, what's happening is she's been captured by the um, Burgundies, which are this group of French nobles that are loyal to the English in exchange for the English not, like, slaughtering them or whatever. And that's who's got her captured, and um, that is who eventually burns her at the stake at the behest of the English. Um, but the mm-hmm. actual inquest is being conducted by um, dignitaries from Rome um, because the charge that they're charging her with is heresy and those charges have to come from the like to-dos in Rome. None of this is really explained and it's really difficult to tell who anyone is. Um, I eventually figured out that that Cockney accented dude that was just like hanging around is the guy that like took a dive out of the castle at Orleans and like you see him um, like flop onto the shore of the river. I was like, oh, that's I finally figured out that's who that was. Yeah. Yeah. The the um, the the guy Richie guy. Yeah. Yeah. They don't explain who any of these people are like in terms of are they English? Are they Burgundy? 
Um, are they loyal to the King of France? Are, who are they loyal to? Why are they here? They don't explain any of that. You just generally understand there's a trial for some reason. She's on trial for heresy for some reason. For some of these characters, it's just a front. But for others, they are genuinely interested in seeing whether she's a heretic or not. And the motivations mm-hmm. for those who do and those who don't is just never explained. To the point where we get into this uh latter third of the movie and when i say that it it's it comes off as a completely separate movie it even feels like it's filmed in a different way and maybe that's because everything is very closed and it's supposed to be very claustrophobic and stuff but it it, all of it is like very very off-putting and not in step with the rest of the movie at all especially because you don't see any of the other characters the merry band are just gone you never see them again which was a total replaced by a very very stern and sassy ghost of dustin hoffman (laughs) who might be satan might be just a hallucination of what she thinks jesus is come to life again unclear and they really missed an opportunity by getting rid of the merry band of soldiers too because we talked about like how they are a really good stand in for the way that the general people of France feel about her taking this leading position they also could mm-hmm. have been a stand in for how the people of France likely felt at the time about this whole tr- trial that she mm-hmm. was going to like they should have should have been there. But I feel like also this is where um, the the screenwriter stopped cribbing off of Braveheart and instead switched gears to Last Temptation of Christ. And oh, I was going to say Elizabeth. But I mean, yeah, I, that, yeah. yeah, but I mean, where I feel like you've got her having these personally and spiritually deflating conversations with Dustin Hoffman, who is either. Uh, a, a new manifestation uh, or just the latest evolution of the the manifestations she's been speaking to. Uh, and I know it's supposed to be confusing for her, but narratively, it really just serves to make her uh, to, to chip away at her resilience during the whole of the of of being on trial. It really just acts as an excuse to we'll let her do her acting over here so that it makes sense when this ostensibly strong character is just passive through the entire third act that we all know where this is headed for her. And at any given moment, there are still 40 minutes left in this movie. Right. I want to talk about the very fast sequence of events that happens where the only people that the only person from Rome that uh, was sort of called out gets arrested because he doesn't want to participate in the trial because the trial is obviously rigged because the people in control in Burgundy and stuff they want her to burn at the stake but then um it's a sort of back and forth montage of her being yelled at by English people in very large robes and then back to her cell where she gets to have a fun uh, and I say fun and as many air quotes as I can muster uh, 
a fun back and forth with the Hoff Reaper. So I don't understand. I was very confused as to where we were going because I knew uh, or how we were going to get to where we were going. And it felt like there was just obstacle and then the obstacle would get removed. But then another obstacle would come, then the obstacle would get removed in a way that made the movie feel longer than it was because this movie is long, but for me in particular, it moved at a clip because so much was going on that I didn't have time to focus on how long it was. Mm-hmm. And then at towards the end, that's that last like 20 minutes is where it really, really slowed down. And one thing I had forgotten about in the 20 years since I watched this uh, is th- like Dustin Hoffman's whole thing, his whole character for calling it that is to... Basically, like I said, is to just deflate her her own fervent belief, basically. Mm-hmm. And it and again, in another scene where you get to see uh, you get a glimpse of the movie Luc Besson probably wanted to make, you know, he basically picks apart her whole uh, belief that the sword in the field was a gift from God and a sign she should go lead an army against the English. And then there's this whole scene of very Edgar Wrighty. Yeah, but it was like it's it's I get what they were going for. And it's kind of on its own merits, kind of a funny sequence. Like it has a lot of a lot of effective stuff. Like I love that, you know, first it's, oh, there's, you know, a bunch of peasants killed a lord and he here's where he dropped his sword. A guy lost a sword fight and this is the body's gone, but the sword's there. And then one was just a guy walking through a field, throws a sword, which 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 got a laugh out of me until I realized I'm like, wait, you movie you don't even have the courage of your own convictions from an hour and a half ago like you're basically like the inciting incident that started this whole the 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 non-necrophilia inciting incident that started this whole movie going you're now going to spend a chunk of time picking apart uh which is I, I, I don't I whatever they were trying to accomplish, it just left me with, OK, you've just shown me that the feeling that I'm wasting my time is valid. Yeah. yeah. So there's another aspect of these last like 20 minutes, like after Dustin Hoffman shows up that I would like to talk about. And that is how much I absolutely fucking loathed the sound mixing in these scenes. I was so like, um, you know, that thing that people have when they can't stand the sound of people chewing. (laughs) I was experiencing that with the way that they had edited the sound in this, where you could hear every time her lips smacked, every time she swallowed was so audible. Mm -hmm. It was so Mm -hmm. off putting. It, only happens in these scenes which i already didn't like and it was upsetting i did not like it i I think you can take some comfort in knowing you were not in the hands of inept inept sound designers so much as in the hands of sound designers being pushed very hard by a megalomaniacal filmmaker who was in love with every aspect of his wife at the time where every every dry swallow and lip chomp they might have wanted to um 
to have uh, turned the levels down on. He was probably screaming at them to make sure they were incredibly audible. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It felt like it, it very much felt like a directorial choice. Yeah. I And I literally made the note. If I have to hear her swallow one more goddamn time. <laughs> oh, oh. A lot of the other production elements I were fine with. Like I thought the costuming was good. Um, that f- the first two thirds, I thought the set design was fine, even if they did some really weird shit with it, like the cannonball mousetrap thing. But the sound <laughs> editing in that last 20 minutes about did me in. Yeah, I think that how they actually sort of get her to the state is really weird really weird specifically because i don't understand the rules of it yeah it's because they don't explain them. i don't and i like i didn't understand why the the priest the the one character in this half of the movie that seemed to like her or whatever couldn't give her confession like what ends up happening is they say that so long as she repents her beliefs you know she's not a heretic and they get her to sign this paper and she's taken away and thrown into uh, another dungeon and they give her clothes to wear and she puts the clothes on and they invite that same priest and they're like see she did not actually repent her way. She's not actually, you know, under that protection because she's wearing the clothing of men again. And you can see on the actor's face that the priest knows that she did not willingly do that Mm -hmm. to spite everything that they had done the day before, but he still won't give her confession. Yeah, that made no sense. And like his actions up to that point kind of made sense. And then that whole thing negated all of it because like basically I was like, oh, so he's just doing a Pontius Pilate. He wanted her to get he wanted her to sign that um, paper repenting of everything so that he could basically hand it off to the English and be like, all right, well, if she dies now, it's not because we said so. Um, was what I understood was the function of getting her to sign the papers. So when he was Mm -hmm. in that cell with her, I fully expected him to hear her confession because he got what he wanted. He washed his hands of it. He got her repentance like he wanted and he knew that she was going to die like he knew the entire time. But his end goal seemed to be when they kill her, I don't want it to be my fault. I want it to be solely the English's decision. So when he didn't mm-hmm. take her confession, I was really confused. And I was like, so was that not his motivation at all the entire time? I was deeply confused by that particular uh script choice mm-hmm. because it didn't make any goddamn sense and then she is very graphically burned at the stake the end oh is yeah. she ever is that ever graphic that was mm-hmm. a, oh boy not actually the most graphic stake burning scene i've ever seen but up there uh there's a scene in season two of penny dreadful where a character gets actually technically strung up in chains poured hot oil over her and then lit on fire and it's worse (laughs) so i was like prepared for this but i mean still it's not nice to watch no i should say not so uh yeah final thoughts on the messenger colon joan of arc before we get into our freezies Uh, (sighs) i feel i feel like uh any movie that asks 
too little of Vincent Cassell and asks too much of Mila Jovovich is uh, is sort of born on the wrong foot. Is it pronounced Cassell? That's my impression. I don't know. I it it could be Castle. Either way, he's great and should be in more. I know. Big nose, like a man with a big nose. Anyway, <laughs> I know you do. Um, <laughs> when we come back, freezies. And this is where we put a clip in. I don't know where I'm going to get a clip from this movie. Good luck. <laughs> We're back. And now this is the time we give out freezies, a joke award or a real award to anything in this movie that we found interesting, entertaining, or uh, overall excellent and or outstanding. Uh, Alex, you're our guest. So you get to give yours out oh, first. Thank you. I, I will. Uh, I, I want to throw a shout to uh, one of only two things that I had remembered from the last time I watched this uh, in the 20th century, uh, which is we, we <laughs> talked about the, uh, the Acme brand English cannonball. What, <laughs> we did, what we didn't discuss was their other high tech uh, castle defense, which is basically just to have a ceiling fan uh, glued to the side of a castle and hope someone climbs up into it head first, which is not a foolish hope because indeed it happens and a guy loses his head in, in sections. Yeah, someone very much oh, did. Boy, so 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 my freezy goes to the uh, the ancient English ceiling fan. You get two more if you have two more. Gosh, um, <laughs> I'm running out of road here. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I I'm actually gonna um, I'm gonna go with Mika on this one and say Vincent Cassell uh, slinging a couple of uh, spiked maces over his shoulders is um, belongs in deserves not only its own movie but its better movie. It's a- it is a better movie. Just give hmm. me that on a loop for two and a freaking half hours and fine. Yeah. Butter my popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, that wow, that was weird. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. I'll take a pass on a third one because I feel like we've chopped this about as finely as my engagement with it will allow. That, That's hey. fair. We can't blame you for that. Micah, do you have any freezies? Um, I do. My first freezy is a... um unironic one and that is a freezy for the costume design i liked it i liked how very specifically period accurate it was um particularly faye dunaway's costuming and particularly faye dunaway's mile high forehead i dug it Mm -hmm. um my second freezy goes to the guy and his pet trebuchet because they brought (laughs) me the only joy that i felt in the film he called it his baby and i was endeared and my final freezy also <laughs> goes to a method of english war machine that we didn't discuss and that was a freezy for the most horrifying medieval weapon i've seen in a film of late and that was the porcupine oh the porcupine the thing that they Ooh. loaded up with the arrows and then sh- shot yeah. through a door and uh, several men including that one man who had just like he just had to accept his fate that he was either going to die on the pikes of the french or on this machine that he knew was coming and you could see the rising panic in his eyes and i was well disturbed so CJ, what of your freezies? Well, it gets a very real freezy for some of the cinematography. There's some really beautiful photography in here if you just take it on its own. Um, 
I think, uh, and uh, the lighting in that party scene as well, just a uh, pretty chef's kiss for me. I thought it was nice to look at. My second freezy is the uh, Benjamin Hill School of Comedy Award <laughs> for the cannonballs that just like cartoon splatted dudes against a wall. <laughs> I, I, I was just very entertained by it. I thought that was uh, that was good. And then the third freezy of mine is going to Vincent Castle because I just like looking at his face. <laughs> So those are my freezies. And now that we've done that, this is the time in which we decide whether or not the movie that we watched this week is still fresh or freezer burnt. Alex, uh, what say you? Uh, I, I don't think it could. I, I don't think it ever had a chance. It's still fresh. I don't think it ever was fresh. It's freezer burnt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Micah, what about you? Uh, same. Uh, even if the rest of the movie had been good, her sister's death scene uh, burnt the shit out of this thing for me. So, and then the rest of it wasn't good either. Um, I don't care how fine Vincent Castle is. It's, it's freezer burnt. He is fine though. Yeah, he is. Oh man. It just, it doesn't make sense and it's not fair. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go freezer burnt as well. Our, our first unanimous negative in like three episodes. Oh wow. I'm on which, <laughs> which is like actually well no in two episodes because we were both we were both obviously very negative on Bad Boys. Yeah, yeah. It's our it's our first three person unanimous negative in a while. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well yeah. earned, I think. Despite the castle <laughs> of it all. So And it's got the highest percentage of any film we've watched so far it sure does i don't think we mentioned earlier in the episode but this sucker still got 30 percent that that feels high that that feels high it's definitely high for our lady in the water episode we had uh malcolm malcolm nygaard on and uh we had a we had a uh pretty interesting discussion about like you know the point of a tomato meter now Especially because uh, so many movies are having these sort of online reappraisals Mm -hmm. as of late. Uh, Jennifer's Body, the most recent one, which a movie I have always loved. And I'm glad to have found a community of people on the Internet who also love it as much as I do. And it's interesting. We work on a binary specifically because the show is ostensibly based on the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter. But uh, yeah, the scoring and how that works. I think people are way more in tune to it now. Since the movie Batman v Superman just decided to wreck the way that people talked about Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Such a cultural, a weird cultural phenomenon, this sort of pronounced and very extreme version of the fans versus critics. a conversation that's been going on forever but like I, that movie was the linchpin that just sparked all of these one changes in Rotten Tomatoes changes in the way that people understand and use Rotten Tomatoes but I would say that this this movie is not at the bottom of the pile of the movies that we've watched already. Because uh, we watched but, Assassin's uh, Creed. A, a close third. <laughs> well, I just I also think it's worth pointing out that 
Um, it came out in like one of the most crowded award seasons literally ever. Um, you know, 1999 was a famously great year for movies. And I feel like there is an element of uh, rising tide lifts all boats. If you feel like you're in a good mm-hmm. season of movies and something can be mistaken for important or you draw out the couple of good things, the couple of likable things about it, that's very possible. The other thing to keep in mind, this is the same year that uh, The Cider House Rules, which is a very bad movie of a very good book won multiple academy awards so the thing to keep in mind is that our critical matrices have always been a little bit off and uh this this may be benefiting from that getting that uh getting to uh 30 percent also maybe just not enough people have watched it to realize how bad it is mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> alex uh thank you for coming on to the show oh my goodness thank you for having me on this has been a real trip yeah i uh, we we'd love for you to come back a uh, movie of your choice next time oh aren't you sweet i am happy to take you up on that that sounds delightful so uh can you tell people where they can find you and your work on the absolutely i am uh i'm between podcasts at the moment um my uh cohort joe tower and i on the wild brunch we are sort of reformatting and coming back as something new later in the spring or summer Uh, but you can find other other fine podcasts that we've worked on at um over on our website for the hatbeard company htbrd.com and if uh the other thing I am always working on, you can head over to SteelApeSessions.com, where every month I drop a new Spotify playlist slash mixtape. Uh, I've been doing that for about three and a half years, so there's a good back catalog to go through, and there's a new one every month. Oh, fabulous. Alex also worked on the the Kim Possible movie, which I watched, and I've really enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad to hear you say that. I thought that it was very cute. And um, but I still like dabble in Disney Channel stuff from time to time in a way that I think people of my cohort do not. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I was able to jump into it and, and enjoy myself uh, quite a bit. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Micah, where can people find you on the Internet? You can find me on Instagram at Lowkey Stroke the Lemur. And you can find me on Twitter at Micah Renee B. And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at CJ period, that's C-E-E-J-A-Y and uh, the word period. I'm assuming you know how to spell it. You can find the show at Below 32 Pod on Facebook and on Twitter. And next week, we'll be with our friend Vaughn Harrison as we watch and unthaw Tyler Perry's Medea's Family Reunion thought uh, uh, Medea the character is getting retired this year and I thought we could do a a tribute to the insanity of the 2000s that is Medea and I have never seen a Medea movie ever of any kind so it will also be my like introduction to that oh and we're choosing a real a real good one (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Please share and uh, have other people subscribe to the podcast. We want reviews. Five star will get people to listen to the podcast and more people in the know. But if there's something that we need to work on, tell us about it and we'll try. If there's something that you love, we'll do more of it. And until next time, y'all stay frosty. Frosty.